How about Josiah and that worship band? And my fantastic wife. <laughs> Did I get points for that? I remember when we got married 21 years, was it, is that right? Two, 20. <laughs> when we got married 21 years ago, it seems like yesterday, but when we were standing up in front of the hundred and whatever, couple hundred people that were there, I remember looking at her almost surreal, thinking, there is no way I can fail this woman right here until I remembered who I was. And then when we went home, I'm thinking, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, I thought through the pre-marriage counseling, through everything, this is going to be the best time of my life. Now, I was right, but I was also wrong, right? Family can be one of the most difficult things to deal with. It's easier to deal with perfect strangers sometimes than it is family. We've been going through, since the beginning of the year, Pastor Allen has kicked us off with Flourish. How to thrive and not just survive in our lives. How to do more than just the status quo. And in our families, I have found it's like peeling that onion back. The closer you get to the middle, the stinkier it can be. But it's also the most intense, perfect design that you... You can experience love that you never thought you could experience. You can experience peace and joy in difficulty like you could never experience outside God's ordination of the family. So tonight, we want to look at not a successful marriage, because successful marriages can have difficulty. Real-life marriages have trouble. But how to flourish in your marriage is something that we can all have in common. How to flourish in your family, whether you're a son or a daughter or you're not married, you're still part of a family. And I would say you're still part of our family here at Church of the Island. So if you're single, you still qualify. I like it. This fills everybody's void. God's good at that, isn't he? So open your Bibles to Psalm 127. This psalm is called a psalm of ascents. It was written by Solomon. And a psalm of ascents basically means the Jews, when they would go back to Jerusalem three times a year for feasts, would sing these songs of ascents. Why is it ascents? Because Jerusalem's on a hill, and they were climbing up to it, and they were whistling while they worked. So they would sing these songs that were written, these wise, ancient songs. And this psalm, I believe, can teach us a lot about the family. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we read the entire chapter, which isn't that long, so don't freak out if you don't have your Bible. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor it, labor, build it, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, to let, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. 
Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. You can be seated. God is pro-family. God is pro-marriage. God wants to bring man and woman together in holy matrimony and bless them and teach them to build a home that they will be happy with, that we will be happy with. So here's the question. What does it take to have a successful family? What does it take to truly have a successful marriage? One that flourishes. Three things. I would say, number one, the home needs to be sacred. The home needs to have the right father. I grew up in an imperfect home. But when I began to be refathered by my heavenly father, he began to teach me love that my earthly father was trying to teach me but couldn't because he was created just like me. We all make mistakes and we're all flawed in some way or another. Listen to verse 1 again. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor what? In vain. What does that mean? How many of you have ever built a house? Nobody. Well, anyway, <laughs> it can be, it can be gru grueling, as a matter of fact, through the permits, through all the process, through negotiating even with bad laborers, substandard work. Um, it can be a tough process. Think of God as a contractor that cannot fail you. The scripture says and makes it very clear when it comes to constructing the family with love, trust, peace, and joy, you and I don't have what it takes. We can't sub the work out. We cannot do it good enough. Unless the Lord does it, they labor in vain who try to build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, go to bed late, eat the bread of painful labors. We work hard at failing. I have talked to many people and I have been in situation myself where I felt like I couldn't do anything right, but I was working so hard at doing everything right. Have you ever been there? In the context of relationships, that's exactly what happens. We're all different. We plug in and God gives us a picture of the church and says, boom, you're a church family. Good luck. No. Boom, you're a church family. You can't build it. It's Christ that builds a church. And if we, we lift him up, he'll draw all men to himself, right? The same goes true, and it starts with me in my life. If I'm a non-believer and I'm plugging away, the best I can do is me. The best I can do is me. All your labor and sweat and toil and hard work is useless if you don't have the Lord. The word labor means to work severely, to toil. You're literally wearing yourself out unless the Lord builds the house. Here's the thing about Jesus. He is the Lord, right? Psalm 100 verse 2 says, Know that the Lord, He is God. He is the one who made us. He knows David. He knows Ashley. He knows all of our interests. He knows everything that we 
don't even know about ourselves. And he says, your identity, like we talked about last week, which will make you flourish if it's healthy, is in me. Look to me, and I will guide you in your relationship. And a lot of times that is submission, and we know all those verses. We're not going to get into all that tonight. But he is the Lord. It is he who has made us. We are his. We are his people. And the sheep of his pasture, he will guide us. Before he started his public ministry, what was Jesus? He was a carpenter. He built things, right? So I believe he built chairs. He built yokes for oxen. He built probably swings. That'd be cool. I don't know if we've seen any of those. He built things, stuff, tables, all kinds of stuff. And then 30 years into his life, he starts his public ministry. Now what's he building? He built people. He built disciples. He went fishing for men. He changed what he was building. But I want you to look at three things in this category that he built. One, he built a heavenly home. For you and me, if we call ourselves believers, there is a place that he has prepared for us. Jesus himself said in John 14, 3, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. He is preparing a place for you and me. And we can't even imagine how great it is. The heavenly home, a mansion, he says, that's going to blow your mind. You can't even imagine how great it is. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, What eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it even entered in the heart of man. You cannot imagine how good God is to you. Wait, let me take that back. I can't imagine how good God is to me because I've seen how God good is to me. How good God is to me. Over the years, the mercy and the grace he has poured on me gives me testimony of how good he is here. And if I can't imagine what is in the future, and I know what he's done here, how great is that? Think about it. I would have paid a bazillion dollars to get her. I didn't know she existed. I give my life to Christ and I didn't pay a dime. We meet each other. And I get to look across at her and say, I'll do whatever. And then not want to do whatever. And he has mercy. And he puts us back together. And I'm able to surrender in ways that I'd never known that I could do before. He gave me strength. Because we have little simple verses like this that encourage us. The Holy Spirit fills us with the fruit of love and joy and patience and kindness, things that I didn't have, that I thought I could give, that we can conjure up because we know that there are lots of kind people that are, he's a good person. It doesn't take a good person. Good people aren't going to heaven. People that have given their lives to Jesus Christ are going to heaven. Amen. People that have given their lives to Jesus Christ can do things that other people can't do. It's almost like a superpower. Enacted by faith and prayer. It's like a superpower that when you realize that you are never alone, he makes sure you're less alone. Which is crazy. 
He promises what your eye hasn't seen nor your ear heard nor has even entered in your heart. That's what Jesus is building for you in heaven. He's building our church home. He says in Matthew 16, 18, Upon this rock, not speaking of Peter, he renamed Peter, he was speaking of himself. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, not David Tippins, not Alan Floyd, not anybody on this earth. Jesus Christ is our cornerstone and we are his bride. Upon this rock, I will build my church. COI is Jesus' church. He's building a heavenly home. He's building for who? His children. Who belong to the church? His children. Not everyone is God's children. Just those who have surrendered to his lordship over their lives. There's something we need to remember. Jesus doesn't just build for everybody. He doesn't build for everybody. I had, we used to flip houses. And I had a friend who was a contractor who did a lot of work. Many. So I could just call them and I didn't realize, you know, that I was getting special treatment until I gave a referral one day of a friend and he called me back and he said, the guy told me, your friend, the contractor, told me that he's gotten to where he only works for friends and family. That's how God is. He only works for friends and family. Everything he does before that is working in friends and family to draw others to him. And when they come to him in faith, they are part of the family. So now we have God says, I'm a friend of God. It's in the word. Look it up. I am adopted into his family because of Jesus Christ. He works and builds a heavenly home for those who are going there. And he is patient with all. He says to Peter, the guy who he's saying, I'm the rock. You're not. You're just going to be named the rock. And 3,000 people are going to come to faith in you after you tell them that you don't know who I am. That is great mercy, isn't it? That gives me hope that all the screw-ups that I've ever had go away when I surrender to the builder, the true contractor of my life. That's the way the Lord does it. I'm not going to build for just anybody. A home that's sacred, the Lord has to build. That's what makes it sacred. It takes another ingredient. A home that's sent. It's almost like our function. A home that's sent. Solomon, who wrote this particular psalm, uses a couple of key words that describe his children. First, uh, let's look at verse 3. Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. They are a blessing, a heritage, a possession, a property. He owns us. Children are the property of the Lord. They're not just born from below by accident. God allowed that to happen in every one of us. How many, who did Jesus die for? All. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, that includes everyone, believes in him would have eternal life. You ought to see your children even at their worst times as a gift from the God of the universe. 
You ought to see your friends' kids as brutal as that might be sometimes when you want to raise them, especially when they're in the restaurant and you're trying to eat. They are a gift from God. They might need new parents or their parents might just need Jesus, but they are still a gift from God. One thing you can't help is who you were born, what color, what sex you are. We can't control any of that stuff. That was God's design for me. That's why we ought to be merciful on everyone. I find it interesting he compares children to arrows. There's two purposes that arrows have. One, it's got to be shot in the right direction if it's going to be useful. The other, it's got to hit the right target if it's going to be useful. If it's shot in the wrong direction, it's not useful. And if it hits the wrong target, it's useless. What's true of an arrow is true of children. They're little people aimed in the right direction. We can't take our wealth to heaven with us, can't we? Why would I spend all of my life teaching my sons to make all the money they can if they can't take it with them? If God is the most important thing, why is he not number one on my teaching list? When I aim that arrow, my thoughts about what I am training them to do ought to be important. You can't take your house, you can't take your bank account, your cars, your boats, your bonds, your real estate. At best, you can leave it to them and guess what that does when your kids haven't been aimed in the right direction. Or if they miss their target, they're going to blow through it and not appreciate it. And sometimes they wind up dead early. We see that in our day today. People who were entrusted what they didn't earn could not appreciate it. And they ate it up. Because this is the only life I got. This is all I have to live for. I'm successful because I have all of this. We've got to direct our children in different ways. One way, spiritually. Write your note. In your notes, write aim. That's what that means. The tragedy is many children are being launched without aiming first. Just get them out of here. They're driving me nuts. I wish they would just go play video games so I could do what I want. Most children are given spiritual direction by the average parent. It's better for parents to not have children, I think, than to have them and not do everything they can to point them to God. It's painful for someone to try and get over bondages that were created and chains and bitterness and anger as children. It's a heavy task that if the parents don't do it, belongs to who? The government? The church. That's what they were doing in the early church in Acts. They were coming and saying, that kid couldn't help it. And instead of just looking a blind eye, they would care for them. Love where you live should look like caring for widows and orphans. We have some in our church. Most children aren't giving any spiritual direction. Isaiah 38, 19 says, One generation makes known your faithfulness to the next. We're not just affecting this one. 
Well, I did good and my son's doing good. What I've taught is going to make it to his next generation. I really didn't like how dad did this. So I'm changing that. I'm going to break this chain of bondage. It's important we stick to the scripture. It's more than just conceiving a child. If you want your children to have a quiet time, i got to have a quiet time. If you want your kids to read the Bible, I have to read the Bible. I have to pray if I want them to pray. I have to go to church if I want them to go to church. And as your pastor, I don't always want to go to church. I have to. But when I go, I want to. I love it. I love hugging you. I love all the things that we get to do. If I'm sending a message that's fake, what does that send? A message that's fake. Have you ever been to someone's house and you knew that they had just gotten in a fight, but you didn't know how to leave and it was kind of awkward and you just got there? How about when you go to church and you're fighting in the car and you're the pastor. <laughs> no, just, never happened to me. I'm perfect. How about you're going to church, you're fighting in the car, and you walk in, and everybody, hey, hey, like it never happened. You're lying. It happens. We fake it. Who notices? I did as a young teenager. I put my relationship with Christ on hold because I judged my parents for not being perfect. I paid the price for that. You might not be a pastor, but you could be a, a father. You could be a single mom. You are the spiritual leader in your home. If you have kids... If you have someone to take care of, if you know someone who needs to be taken care of, as a believer, God wants to use you to do that. How? Begin when they're young. Read Bible stories to them when they're young. Let them hear you pray. Sometimes we'll pray these things over and over, but I'd still say praying is better than not praying. Pray. Pray with them and for them. Pray for them when they're not around. As you take them to church, explain what we're doing when we're tithing. Explain what we're doing when we're giving communion. Explain what we're doing at Easter and Christmas. Why do we believe what we believe? Be sensitive to every spiritual question they ask. Dawson especially asks a bazillion questions, and when he was really young, Dylan absorbed so much differently than Dawson. You can't play favorites. Everyone hears differently. So you have to do more listening than you do speaking when relating to others, whether they're children or not, but especially with the next generation. So I would listen, and i go, I don't have the answer to that question, or I'm going to have to make this up. And sometimes I would just say that out loud, or we would research it together. He made me sharper. Listen. Be sensitive to every question. There's no bad questions. Pray for them every day and be specific. I've prayed for wisdom for their spouses. 
for what they're going to do for a living, for God's call on their life no matter what. You ask God, even as you pay attention to how he has shown you what their makeup is, and that will guide your prayers. God will make you more sensitive to outside. I heard about a man that once argued with an English poet, Samuel Coleridge, about this place of religious instruction and parenting. He said, I don't think parents should indoctrinate their children to religion. Very common humanistic approach. Instead, they should give their children the freedom to make the freedom to make their own choices. He didn't say a word, Coleridge did, but instead invited the man to his backyard to look at the garden, and the visitor said, This isn't a garden, this is a patch of overgrown weeds. Coleridge said, Well, it used to be a garden, but I decided to give it the freedom to become whatever it chose to be. Pretty good, huh? I had no interference, and that's what it became. If you don't choose to cultivate your children's relationship with God in a spiritual direction, the devil will see to it that he will. And they will be filled with the weeds of this world because everybody has an opinion and everybody is smarter than your parents. Amen? It used to take a village. It still does. In God's economy, the church is called by the family to follow God the same way. Proverbs 13.24 says this, Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. I'm never going to spank my kid. It's a tough thing now. Disciplining them, we saw Eli lose his sons and his family fell apart because a man of God decided to let them do whatever they wanted. Look at 22.15 in Proverbs. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. Why? Because there are, what I found is, if an undisciplined five-year-old by their parents will be eventually an undisciplined 25-year-old, and the government will throw them in jail. They are going to have awful issues surrendering to the power of authority after the age of seven And most of the problems that I see are in the ages of 18 to 35 if they live that long. And many don't live past 50 because they've had a heart attack and it's too late. When kids are given their own way, they figure it out. What do they figure out? That pleasure feels better than authority. I don't believe I've ever met a child that likes authority. There isn't one. But when they learn to respect authority, they're a different. It changes them, and they learn to respect everything. And they love you for it. A parent must convince themselves that punishment is not something he does to the child, but for the child. We don't love them if they do that. It must be done when the child is young, too. Because that window of opportunity, I believe is about seven years old, which is why we see some indoctrination in our society of idealism at the age of five. Because if I can get a kid to believe that his parents are stupid at five years old, his parents are stupid forever, and I own that family. The devil has come to steal, 
kill, and destroy you and your family. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And in the Old Testament, we hear stories of that said basically over and over. But you would have none of it follows that. We could have had peace, but you didn't want to do it God's way. We must guide them spiritually, develop them emotionally. The first thing an archer does with an arrow is sharpens that. The reason for that is otherwise the arrow won't, so, won't serve that purpose. You can aim it straight, it'll hit the target, but it'll bounce off because it hasn't been fine-tuned. Doing what God wants them to do requires sharpening in the process. That is just regular walking around discipline. If you're going to develop your children emotionally and provide that environment, there's no substitute for two things. The best way to sharpen somebody is to be there. You are one of the ingredients, and time is the other ingredient. The best relationships I have are because I've got more time with them. Ashley and I had to spend time together. You have to spend time with Christ to develop a relationship with him. You have to spend time with your kids. Parents are the only ones that can teach them on a daily basis the six most important words you will learn while relating to others. Please. Thank you. I am sorry. Many young adults grow up with so many things. They think that what they have is a privilege and that they are owed even more. Not knowing what the value of what they have really is. If you have younger children, start young. Finally, we need a home that's secure. A home that's safe. Go back to verse 1. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It seems like the Lord goes from the house to the city. So you've got a house, and now you've got all these houses. So I've got a little city to deal with. Watchmen are set in place to guard the bundle of houses, to protect the large quantity of people. It, I care about what is happening to every one of you to keep them safe. So they would look out, and if the enemy is coming, they can see in advance what they are to, and they gather the troops, and they can defend themselves. To watch means to guard, to protect, to keep, to build a hedge of protection around. If we can't build our home, how can we build a hedge of protection around a city? It's in vain for you to rise up early, right? It's in vain for you to retire late and eat the bed. We just have to rethink what we are doing. It's, if it's in vain, it's empty and meaningless. You can't watch over your home. Why do I need God only to build up my home, my family and marriage? Because of this. What I just mentioned a minute ago. We have an adversary and he ain't sleeping. And he is constantly on the prowl. First Peter chapter 5 says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. He's no roaring lion, but he's prowling around like one, seeking who may he may devour. He's outside the gate. He's outside your property line. God watches and has complete control over what comes into your gate if you are looking to God. If you don't, he can infiltrate your gate and he will do it in the ways that you wouldn't think he would do it. I am working so hard to take care of my family while my wife 
is missing me. So an affair ensues. I have all kinds of things that I want to mention in a minute. But the devil's plan is to steal from you, to kill you, to destroy you. Greater is he who is in you, though, than he who is where? In the world. So if you have a watchman who is the God of the universe who can infiltrate the power of the enemy, who should we look for? Ways the devil can destroy your home, drugs and alcohol. They destroyed my home and my dad's no longer here. Second, sexual immorality. If you have sexual immorality in your marriage, pornography is a huge problem. But you know what? I have seen people healed from that through confession and dealing with it. I have seen miracles take place in drugs and alcohol. God says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. But the devil can infiltrate, and he's, gonna, he's coming to you. Why? Because you're a believer. He just wants you neutralized so that you have no effect on the world that's dying around you. And if they can look and see that you have the same problems that they have, well, he doesn't have anything to share. Our identity is in Christ, so should our behavior be. I'm no longer defined by the things that I used to do in the flesh. We ought to be more mindful of our watchman, knowing that he loves us. And he tells us what to do, and we can simply make good decisions by going, no, right now. Lord, I'm yours right now. I don't think I need to say anything about adultery. What does that do? How about unresolved conflict? When you have a fight and you never resolve it, you don't want to talk about it, you go to bed angry, if you will. Sweep it under the rug. If you don't deal with that anger, you go to bed mad. The day turns into two, three, three weeks, and now you've got bitterness, and things build up, and there's no, un there's no resolution. When the devil gets a toehold, he'll turn it into a foothold, which turns into a stronghold, and before you know it, you're on the ground, being held by a power you didn't want to be held by. And the kids pick up on it and say, what's up with mom and dad? Why are they having all these problems? Back to the fighting in the parking lot at church, and we come in and, hey, Jimmy and Joy. In marriage, you're going to have conflict. And then, how about this one? This is the biggest one of all, and I think it runs all of them, selfishness. The biggest thing of all, I believe that's what sin ultimately you could sum it up to be, is I am God and he is not you can't have a home filled with love and joy and peace when there's selfishness that says, look out for number one. That's what the world says. Don't you want to be happy? Well, get a divorce. Take care of yourself. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he should do what? Deny himself. He says literally the exact opposite of what we see on people wearing in t-shirts and telling in counseling sessions that cost us $100 per hour. If God is not on that throne, then you will only take care of yourself and you will not be able to take care of the people that God has entrusted you to and your family will disintegrate. And sin wants you dead. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 33. 
You cannot have a home filled with love and joy, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. So if that stuff comes from God, if the Lord's building your house, you're not laboring in vain, are you? We're laboring at different things. I'm laboring at love where you live. I'm laboring to meet the needs of my community. I'm laboring to spend more time with my kids when it's difficult to do. I'm laboring to go to bed earlier so that I could wake up. I have to adjust schedules. I have to submit authority. There might be a million things that I have to do to subvert my own selfishness in my own head that I can put him back on the throne. It's one thing to pray a magic prayer, guys. Lord, help me deal with this. And I'm a Christian, and woe is me, and we, we work our butts off and wonder why we're not getting anywhere. But I'm telling you the most freeing thing in the world is to give it to him. Not let go and let God. Let go and listen to God. Let go and pray. Let go and be available. Let go and surrender to God. Let go of what? Your selfish desires. I can't do this thing called marriage, Lord. I need you. I can't do this thing with my my brother's kids. I can't. I don't have the money. I need you. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So when you say, I can't, the watchman who's building your home will go, watch this. And there won't be any explanation that you can give that you're a better person. It's going to glorify our Father who is in heaven and draw all men unto himself. Because what did you do? You lifted up Christ in your own life. Because you lifted him up in your own heart. I just want you to bow your heads. I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're pretty much done. Some of you might be struggling with some stuff. Maybe you know somebody in your family that is selfish. Or maybe they have had a problem with drugs and alcohol. Maybe they've struggled with Unresolved conflict. Maybe you have struggled with unresolved conflict and you want to deal with it. This is an opportunity to just give that to God. If you are a believer, he says he wants to take your burdens. Come unto me, he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. There might be someone here who just doesn't know Jesus at all, and this is an ordained moment for you. I said it earlier, for God so loved you that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He came to show you an example of how much he did love you. And he already knew that you were going to be born the way you were born and all of your idiosyncrasies. But let me tell you something. He doesn't mess up, and you're perfect. He says that if you admit in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's that simple. 
And from that point on, you are a child of God and he is building you a house in heaven. He's already built a church family right here or wherever you live. And he wants to build your home. I'm going to pray. I want, you, I want to invite you now to stand. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be standing right down here in the front by that cross over there. There's an altar up here. Maybe you just want to give something to God. Just admit something on your own. You can pray where you are. We don't want to embarrass anybody. But I want to give you some options. Take this time to give your heart. If you're a non-believer, now's a great time. We want to celebrate with you. If you are a believer, now's a great time. Because God wants to heal your heart today. Lord, as we worship, and we pray, and we do it honestly, we trust that Jesus came to die for our sins. And there are sins that exist in this room that we want to get rid of. You say that you want your church to be without spot and blemish and that through your blood shed on the cross, we are clean. Lord, cleanse us. We want to be the example that you have set us out to be for our generation, for the next generation and beyond that. We see people around us all the time that struggle with their families. And we know that we have an enemy who wants to destroy the family because he, if he can, he can destroy a society. And tonight we come against the we come against any stronghold that the devil might have on us that he won't have any foothold or toehold on our family. Lord, thank you for watching over our families. And thank you for building us a home for eternity that matters. And right here to show us your greatness and your goodness in our lives and your love for us. In all these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.